Amanda Gardner. And I'm Jim Gardner. We've been married 67 years. We serve one another because we're we're there for each other. Uh, he's helpful uh, when I need help, and most times. I feel blessed and extremely fortunate. This wonderful lady has accepted me as her my life partner. When she needs something, I provide it. And sometimes we don't see eye to eye, but we agree if ultimately to support each other and love each other. What we do to have fun is um, we eat out, uh, we enjoy our church, we enjoy our family, we have family get-togethers more, uh, kind of spread out now. Uh, more when the kids were younger. Jesus uh, in our marriage had to make, make us more like himself, but it's belief, belief in him and, and uh, know that he is there and what he did for us. That is something we have to draw on all the time. Remember what he did. I really rang the bell when I met my wife. The biggest mistake is probably not letting him know how I feel a lot of times. If I was not happy or something was bothering me, it's not talking it over with him. Probably that was the biggest mistake. And she's forgiven me whenever I needed to be forgiven, which is a wonderful thing. The advice to give to an unmarried person is make sure you plan on being married to someone, plan on it, that's it. That's who you're going to marry and you're, you're going to make a go of it. Uh, there may be unhappy times, rough times, but be able to uh, know that if you're going to start out loving someone, you need to make it last. Examine yourself. Examine your relationship, and if it has weaknesses, address them. What I love most about my spouse is she's mine. <laughs>
the establishment of God. God has established marriage. Um, as we see in the scriptures, we even say we, Grace Church Waldorf, believe that the term marriage has only one meaning. The uniting of one man and one woman in a single exclusive union as presented in scripture. Even as it's presented in scripture, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. See, this union is formed in a civil and religious manner consummated through sexual intimacy. So we're clear on that also. We just have to understand this. It is a covenant established by God to reflect his glory, represent Christ's love for the church, and offer hope to a world that needs the love and salvation of Jesus Christ. Do we believe that as Grace Church? Amen. All right, good. So as we believe that, because it's according to the scripture, we have to understand that we have a responsibility to hold fast to our marriages. And so as we looked at last week at this Divorce Proof Your Marriage, and we looked at the dream, the marriage map that is called in the book, it goes down these that just descending down this mountain, what happens when you first get married, and I mentioned last week about the dream, that day when the woman was dreaming. Dream. Remember that song? Dream, dream, dream. Well, the dream is there. It should still be there. It's there for Jim. I mean, he still has that dream in his heart. And there's a dream, but sometimes dream can turn to a disappointment because we see flaws and imperfections. And we don't see the person we thought we once saw in our dream. And then the disappointment turns to discouragement. And when discouragement starts to internalize, then it turns to a distance in the relationship. That's when the man starts doing something for himself and the woman starts hanging out with the friends. They kind of distance themselves. And then it goes to disconnect, discord, and then eventually to emotional divorce. You're together, but you're really not together. And that's where at that point... Not only sexual intimacy is gone, relationship is gone. And so it's important for us as a people of God that it's not over when it reaches that place. There's still hope. And we talked last week about forgiving love because you want to climb back up to the dream. And so forgiving love, as we mentioned last week, is that we don't want to live as though we were once a saint or once a sinner and then a saint and then we live like we're still a sinner because we shouldn't be alienated or living out of harmony with God. By forgiving one another, we're living in harmony with God. Well, this week, we want to talk about serving love, because that's the next step in getting back to the dream. Last week, we talked about forgiving love as a choice. Serving love is a lifestyle. So it's important. So as you're looking at your worship guides and your outline, you'll see some of this will pertain to your outline. In other cases, it will not. So serving love can be defined as a need meeting love, a need meeting love. And it's important for us to gather that as we see that, that we would have to go back to the scripture to understand that. Because when you serve someone, whether it be that you commit some kind of task for someone, there are other ways in which you need meet or meet the need of your friend or in this case, a marriage context, when you're meeting the need, it can be done in many ways. It can be done through a task, but it also can be done through communication. And so we want to first look at the example in John 13. Turn with me to John 13, verse 1. 
And as we look at that, we have to understand if serving love is a need meaning love, then we have to look at this story of Jesus of washing the feet of his disciples because he did meet a need. And we want to look at that and understand what is God's serving love? What is God's serving love? Okay, so when we look at it, we have to understand. Number one, what we have to, what we have to gather is understand the process of even this narrative right here. Because Jesus is now, this is the day before he's about to be crucified. He's left his public ministry. Now he's into what we call a private ministry with his disciples. He's meeting uh, at this time and he's coming together. And as we understand, just before the feast of the Passover in verse 1, he has to demonstrate to them what does it look like to serve his own, his disciples, the one in whom the Father gave to him. And so he being the Lord, the teacher, Adonai, Elohim, Yahweh, we understand that he is God in flesh, the incarnate God, yet as great as he is God, he still looks to serve. And so as we see this, we have to understand that God's serving love always begins with a Christ-centered love, Christ-centered love. Now, what does that particular mean? We know in the book of John that love is, a, is an important term. And we also know that believe and knowing are two important terms in the book of John. We understand, too, that in John 3.16, you'll see it everywhere at any sport arena. You'll see it in some sports figures. They have John 3.16 where they're shadowed up because they know that is a key verse that reminds us of God's love, that he loves us. Not a kind of romance love, but a love that meets a need. And in this case, God met a need. So as we look at John 13, 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now it's important to understand hour, because seven times in the book of John it's laid out. It's, it started in chapter 2, and it goes all the way through verse, to even chapter 17, verse 1. Because the hour is in reference to the, the coming of his death, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In fact, the hour represents the gospel. And so as we understand is that he's saying, John the Apostle's writing, he's saying not that hour has come to depart out of this world to the Father. Now remember, we live in this world, we're not to be of this world. The world system in and of itself is opposing to God, it's contrary to God, it's conflicting with God's plan. And so when we understand the world system, we have to understand that it's something God is opposed to. But yet Jesus, who came in flesh, had to become like flesh in order to die. And we know that he came in the likeness of man, even Romans chapter 8 it states. So this is important when John is writing here is he's saying something. Now when he's writing, he's, he's, he's commenting to the reader saying that Jesus came for a purpose. And he came ultimately to leave this world. You and I as Christians, we live in this world. But our ultimate goal is to leave this world and to be in the presence of God. But while we're in this world... Jesus shows an example to serve because his love is the centerpiece of service. It's the centerpiece. And that's why he goes on to say, having loved his own, there's those whom he loved compassionately. He loved those who come in grace. We understand that he reached out to all by sending his son, the father. But yet in the missio day, in the sending of the son, we understand ultimately that it's efficacious for those who receive him, meaning that the love is then experienced when we trust in Christ. And so when this love is given, now he goes, having loved his own who were in the world, 
He loved them to the end. So now he's committed. So Christ-centered love is a commitment to serve unto the end. How about us? Are we committed to serve to the end? In a marriage context, are you committed to serve to the end? We saw an incredible couple here, 68 years of marriage and counting by the grace of God, and they're still serving one another. And they're still loving each other to the end. And that's what marriage should be, that context of to the end. But it's also second thing that, that, that God shows forth to us too, an other-centered culture, which is countercultural to the world, an others-centered culture. Now, what does that simply mean? It just simply means that we're not to think of ourselves before we think of others. Now, is it countercultural to the world? I think so. Do you have kids? <laughs> um, you'll find out very quickly that um, others-centered is countercultural to the world. Have you ever seen parents cheer for their children at a game? Um, you will see that there is a focus on self-centeredness rather than others-centered. How quick do we fight to get a parking spot or be the first one in line? Again, that first thing, willing to get dirty for someone so someone else can be clean. That's what's happening in this story. Take the lower place to honor another. See, when we see this story laid out, we read the scripture, we read the narrative, and we see during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father has given him all things into his hands. Now, why is John identifying that? Because he's showing forth that he is God, that he's about to do something that most people in his position wouldn't even do in the world. Someone who's higher up would not even consider doing. And here, John is highlighting that he's been given to him. In John 5, it says that all judgment has been given to the Son by the Father. And that he had come from God and was going back to God. So the Father sends the Son. He comes to die, to be resurrected. And then as he's resurrected, he's going back to the Father and having that internal relationship connected together again. That unity and that harmony. And then it goes on this in verse 4. Rose from the supper. So here's Jesus. He rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking them off, and takes a towel and he ties it around his waist. And then it says, then he poured into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around his waist. And wait a minute. This was done by a lowly servant in the house. Never would this be done by the king of kings and the lord of lords? Never to be done by a rabbi or a teacher. Never to be done where they would serve someone below them. But Jesus is saying, I must do this. Why is he doing this? Well, he's representing one, spiritual cleansing. The water and the cleansing of the feet wasn't just to clean off dirty feet, which was done by a lowly servant, but it was to represent a spiritual cleansing. Jesus was about to say, I am about to die for sin, and you're not even understanding it yet, and I'm going to show you service. I'm going to serve you, because I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so he's giving that, that picture, and then Peter, he says, proudfully, he says, Lord, do you want to wash my feet? See, what stops us from being served by God? It could be our pride. Sometimes we don't want God to step in, because if he does then we wouldn't be able to get the credit. 
Sometimes in this world, we want to get credit. It's hard. It's hard to, rem- to, to ever think that whenever you think about a marriage context, who's keeping the marriage together? Who's the one who says, boy, you guys have a great marriage. Who keeps the marriage together? And often it leans towards the wife, not the man, but the wife. But is it really about the wife keeping it together? Is it really about the man keeping, the husband keeping it together? Or is it about coming together? And I think sometimes what happens is uh, Peter was missing that at that time. He says, what am I doing to you that you do not understand now, but for afterward you will understand? See, what I'm doing now, he says, you don't understand it. Why? Because he's about to die, and they haven't fully grasped it yet. So as he's serving him, he's serving him, understand that. But then Peter replies, and he said to him, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus answered. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Meaning if I don't cleanse you, if I don't serve you, if I don't cleanse you and wash you from your sin, you will have no part of me. See, the purpose of having a relationship with God is not to just simply be cleansed from our sin, not to simply just close it out and say, I got a ticket to heaven, I'm going, I'm good, and I can live for myself. The purpose of being washed and cleansed by Jesus is so now we can be a part of him and he's obviously a part of us. So we can have an intimate, loving relationship with him. And what about marriage? Is marriage just... A duty, a task? You just check off and said, I've served my wife today. I've served my husband. I'm good. I'm going to do what I need to do. Or is it about an intimate relationship? Is it about, and that's a hard thing. We talked about, even when you saw Mark Gungren on the video, it's difficult for a man to share his feelings. It's always difficult to open up and be vulnerable and transparent. Why? Because men, we're strong. We want to be like we're problem solvers. We want to be able to accomplish things. And when we have to share and bear our hearts, all of a sudden now we realize we failed. Because once our hearts are bared and opened, then we're vulnerable in front of our wives. And we're vulnerable in front of our wives, then we have to admit that we failed. And see, God's trying to show us that intimate relationship. If we're just focused on others, when God is working on us, we really, truly, when we're serving others, God can then change us. And then we can grow. And then we can be open and vulnerable and saying, you know what, Lord? I really need to understand more and more about service. Third, it's a choice to obey God in a lifestyle. It's a choice. Now, choice may sound like an option. But unfortunately, God doesn't seem to give us that option as an option. <laughs> he gives it to us because we're committed to it. I just want to show you something here. In the verse here, it says, you call me teacher and Lord. Okay, he goes, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Now, the word ought to in the Greek means this. It means an obligation. It means an obligation to meet certain social and moral expectations. So there is an obligation for you and I to serve other people. See, it's so easy in our Western American mindset to just receive, receive, receive as Christians. But what if we could be intentional about serving others? Not when it feels good, not when you're up to it, not when your body feels up to it, but just serving because 
we're obligated to God. Not obligation because it's a duty, but obligation because it's a commitment to honor him. Because that's why obedience is to honor God. It's not obedience so I could check it off, but obedience that says, I want to honor God so I can grow an intimate relationship with him, so I could be in a deeper relationship with God. That's the purpose of it. And you might even say that, he goes on to say that an example, an example is a pattern. The word example means an example of a behavior that brings moral instruction. So it's a model. So here Jesus is not just simply saying that we're obligated to do it, but that we set a pattern for others to follow us. That's discipleship. And that's why it's important for us to do so. I mean, even Paul said in Romans 1, 14 and 15, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I mean, it's not just to you who are believers in Rome. I am obligated to those who are my enemies. Those who would spit on me, just push me away, would not have anything to do with me. I'm still obligated. Because I'm obligated because Jesus did that for me, is what Paul's saying. And if Jesus cleansed us and washed us and served us, we're obligated to serve others. That's why if in our marriages, if we're not intentional, we all fail in this area. I stand before you, man, and I'm not just simply saying it, but I fail in this area. To look at my marriage as an opportunity for intimacy with my wife, and I'm talking closeness with her. Because sometimes I fail because I'm on task, I'm focused, I'm wanting to be a problem solver, I want to fix things, and God's saying, wait a minute, hold on, you have a relationship that reflects my son's love for the church. And so I stand before you to saying that I am no expert in saying that I have it all together, but I can assure you that when, when we see the reflection of Christ, then we're challenged. We're challenged to stand before God. It's important for us to understand that what is a marriage really supposed to look at? Now, some may see it as a 50-50 stock exchange marriage. You know, I called it the 50-50 stock exchange. And what that means is simply that you do your part, I do my part. You do, this, you do some of the cleaning, I do some of the cleaning. You do some of the cooking, I do some of the cooking. You make sure you watch the kids, I watch the kids. You get a night out, I get a night out. Now, you can live happily in that kind of exchange. You can live in that, but here, here can be a problem, and, and this can be a problem that was even identified, obviously, in the book. These are my own words. They're not from the book. Sometimes I think we look at it as negotiations. You know, when you're, you have a stock, you have an agent, the broker's out there trying to negotiate a price for you to buy and sell. So you have negotiations. How about in our marriage, in our marriages? Sometimes we're just sitting there and we're trying to negotiate. It's kind of that philosophy, if you meet my needs, I'll meet your needs. Let's negotiate. This week I'm having a really tough time. Hey, why don't you take over my duties and I'll take over your duties. And then before you know, now it could work out great. It's not a bad approach. But what can happen sometimes in its foundational established element, it can cause the spouse to be thinking about their own interests and not the interest of the other. It's saying that, hey, you know what? I gotta get this done, you get that done and we'll work together. And maybe if the wife that I mentioned last week may not wanna share her struggle or doesn't wanna speak up, could be stuffing that. And then it causes a potential problem in the marriage. But it may just be that you work through negotiations. Now, it could be another thing, trade-offs. You know, you may have a trade-off. Again, this is like from the book, it says spouses keep keeping score so one person never gets or gives more than the other. 
So the goal is to meet each other halfway. So when you have trade-offs, although can work functionally, may not always happen well in the relationship intimately. And so if we're going to focus on being intimate in our marriages, building relationships, then it's important for us to not just be about tasks and making our situations go well, but maybe it, it involves working on dealing with a more foundational element of trying to encourage each other and be there for each other. So that, this is another. And lastly, in the 50-50 stock exchange marriage, you may have deal makers and deal breakers. Okay, deal. Sometimes we make deals and we break them. We create charts, ledgers for the financial budget, promises made and not promises kept. As long as you could realize that you were in it for the long haul, like a stock market, you can't count the gains and losses and internalize them. You need to evaluate the stock and see if it's a good time to change to another stock. So it's the idea that sometimes what happens is we, we, we focus on deal breakers and deal makers and then we replay the videos. We don't forgive. We struggle with it. Then when a promise is not kept, boy, you're going to hear it, whether you're a wife or you're a husband. And sometimes it's a struggle to know when you make a deal, is it going to work for the long haul or not? Because sometimes it doesn't go through well. And so you got to say, okay, we're in it for the long haul. I messed up there. It was a bad deal. I should have told my stockbroker to you know, not, not buy any shares on that product. But you learn. And you grow, and you, so in this case, sometimes the 50-50, the goal for the marriage is happiness and problem-free marriage rather than just the goal to serve one another. And so what would it look like? Well, I think that the scriptures presents, I think, a better one, a 100-100 marriage. Now, where do we find that? Well, we find it in a couple of ways. Well, the 100-100 marriage starts with submission to God. It starts with submission to God. And when we submit ourselves to God, it's that triangle. God's on top. You have both spouses on each side. And the marriage will be strong in its foundation when they're both looking to God, submitting to God. Now, submission can be stated in many different ways, especially in today's world and today's context. But as we look at Ephesians 5, and 24... We cannot, um, we cannot, you know, we have to look back at and we cannot ignore verse 21 because it's, it talks about a context of submitting to one another as a whole. So if we're submitting to one another as a whole, then the wives in the marriage need to do as well as the husbands. But here's the key. If it's saying submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ, then the submission is to God. It's in reverence to Christ. So when we look at verse 22 now, although in the Greek it doesn't use the word submit, it's implied, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So the submission is created order as unto the Lord. That's the key phrase. So when the wife is submitting as to the Lord, then they'll submit to their husbands. Submission also begins and remains in the Lord. For in the context of marriage, wives submit to the husbands because they submit to the Lord, but women are equal in essence yet are different in role. So when a wife submits to her husband, not only does it create peace and order, but a witness to others, to other marriages, whether Christian or not. It's an opportunity to win 
others. Now let me just share one other scripture in 1 Peter that is, is highlighted. 1 Peter chapter 3. It says this, Likewise, wives, verse 1, Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be one without a word, but by the conduct of their wives. And so it's important to understand that submission is a key element, not only in keeping order in the marriage, but also being a witness to those who are far away from God or a witness to other marriages in the body of Christ. So number one is a 100-100 marriage talks about submission. But now, secondly, self-sacrifice. As you look in chapter 5, verse 25 now, as we move a little bit closer, it says, Husbands, rule over your wives. Does it say that? Are you guys paying attention or falling asleep on me? What's that? Yeah, all right, there you go. Rule over, no, it says, husbands, love your wives. It doesn't say rule over your wives. It has no indication of that. So when a wife submits, they're not submitting under the authority of the husband before they're submitting under the authority of Christ. And then when they submit, they're submitting because their husbands are leading well and loving them well. So husbands, guess what? We're called to love and serve our wives. Do we do that all the time? No. Are we perfect? No. But we're called to lead our wives. We're called to stand up and lead in every capacity. We're to live an example of Christ in front of them. Because by leading the wife, it's God-ordained role. It's created order. It's a reflection of Christ's love and authority of the church. So when we lead our wives and love our wives, then a people can see a picture of what Christ loves the church and how he loves the church. Because it's quite clear that Jesus loved the church by giving of himself. That's why it says here in verse 25, it says the following, pass, or following phrase, and gave himself up to her. That's the sacrifice. In fact, in the Greek, we know it's uper, which means to give of himself in behalf of her, in place of her. So Jesus gave of himself, all of himself, for the church, for those who have trusted in him, those who have efficacious, who received that love. And now he serves them still. So he didn't just serve them at the point of the death, burial, and resurrection. He continues to serve us. And he shows to be the humble God that he is, the humble servant. Because we understand that in Philippians chapter 2. So we have to understand that he does. So this is where we see the 100-100% marriage. 100-100 marriage is that it's self-sacrificing. Meaning husbands, if you want to reflect Christ, give of yourself and love your wife. Doesn't mean you're giving in, you're demonstrating love. I see some of you laughing over there. Doesn't mean you give in, because you gotta lead her. You don't, give, you don't lead her by giving in. You lead her by showing her what it's like to be like Christ. And so we have an important stance, men, to show forth that love. So that's why he's highlighted that. Third, sanctification. And we understand this too, because we understand that Jesus came, and it says this in the next verse, that he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of the word with the word. Now, the washing, again, is that, that symbolism of cleansing of sin. And the word of God is the gospel, the message of the gospel. And the gospel, the truth, sets a person free from their sin. And so when the gospel comes in, the person and work of Jesus Christ, then we understand that when we trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we've been set free from our sin. 
And so when we're set free from our sin, he sanctifies us. And men, we're called to be that part in our marriages. By living example, loving our wives, we're showing forth the sanctification that's working through Christ in us. And now it's no longer that we're positioned as saints, but now we're to live above reproach. Now, do we do it all the time? No. Should we keep a ledger, ladies? Uh, Yeah, you can. Uh, You want to make a difficult marriage? Yes, you keep a ledger. Keep it going. But the thing is, though, God doesn't keep a ledger on us too often either. We've got to be careful. When we keep a ledger on our spouses, God's not always keeping a ledger on us. So should we be doing that? This is a challenge. This is a challenge. That's why if serving love is a need-meeting love, then the spouse needs to discover the other's needs and attempt to meet them. So it's not just a need-meeting love, I'll do a task. It may go a little further. That's why I was talking about intimacy and relationship, going a little deeper. And I know this is challenging for men. It's very challenging because it's difficult for us to open up. It's difficult for us to be romantic. It's difficult for us to share our feelings. Uh, We just want to check it off, do the task, and move on to the next. But God's saying, if I, who am a masculine God, can love on you, then you know what? Um, I want to show you that by opening up, sharing your feelings, you can be set free. And then transfer that to your marriage. But it starts with communication. Communication is necessary in meeting the needs of your spouse. I know it's hard. Again, men, we don't like to say too much. We just want to move on to the next task. But communication means that we have to open up and share. So communication, a definition from the book, Divorce Proof Your Marriage. Gary and Barbara say this. Communication is the process of sharing yourself verbally and non-verbally in such a way that your spouse both understands and accepts, though not necessarily agrees with, what you are sharing. So now that's what we as men, when we want to be on top of things and our wives don't agree with us, then we feel like we failed. And when we feel like we failed, we give up. And when we give up, we start to get a little bit angry. So we get frustrated, and then the wife says, simmer down. And then we don't simmer down because we want to be right. Sharing a little bit about myself. But anyway, here's some levels, five levels of communication. There's ways to communicate. One is sharing general information. Sharing general information. Uh, Just basic, you know, sharing. Number two, sharing facts. Sharing facts. That's another level of communication. So you have general information and facts. And usually when communicating, you get through that pretty well. But now as each of these levels increase, so does the level of vulnerability and openness, because now we have sharing opinions and beliefs. Okay, now we get to opinions and beliefs. Now it can get a little dicey, because <laughs> the communication can get a little rough. It can get tough if people start sharing their opinions and their beliefs and others don't agree. Then it gets challenging, but it's a means of communicating. Four is sharing feelings and emotions. So now only do you share your opinions and your beliefs But now your feelings and your emotions get involved. So now it's becoming more increasingly vulnerable and open and challenging. Then we get to the last level, which is sharing needs, intimate concerns, 
hopes and fears. Now, men, I know it's tough. We don't want to go there because it's too much time. We got a task to do. We just want to share general information and move on to the next task. We may want to share some facts and move on to the next task. We don't want to waste time. We want to get to the next task. But sharing needs, number five, intimate concerns, hopes, and fears is time-consuming. But as it's time-consuming, you'll find out in a short moment it will help your marriage. It will help your marriage. That's why we have to be intentional. That's why I offer this, requirements for intentional intimacy in marriage. Now you have to be intentional. So what does it mean? Now, it means this. If you want to be intentional, you have to be ready to communicate. It's called deeper communication. It's not just communication. It's deep communication. Again, it's hard for us as men, really tough. I know, you men are just uh, gritting your teeth. Because what Mark Gungard said is that that's why they leave their conference to have fun. It's because it's fun. It's comical because men don't like to talk about deep-seated, intimate stuff. But communication is necessary. And by doing that, you find yourself where you have to open up. Because now you have to be vulnerable. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be open. You have to share. It's not easy. I know being vulnerable is a difficult thing because now you have to admit you may have failed. But wives like that because then it gives you an opportunity and me to say, okay, where do I need to change? It's hard. It's, this is deep, deep language. It's difficult. Willingness to meet each other, each other's needs as well. The willingness to meet each other's needs. So you have communication, vulnerability, and the willingness to meet. So it's intentional. So now, if, if it's a need-meeting love, if serving love is a need-meeting love, you got to find out and discover what are these needs. Okay, what are these needs? Well, there's top five needs here for man and for women. And for man, let's just go through this really quick. For one, top one, the first one is unconditional love and acceptance. The little boy wants to be loved. I know sometimes, wives, you think, boy, there's the little boy in my, in my husband. Got to take care of the husband. Got to make sure they're fed well, that they clean up, and they make sure that they get themselves to bed in time, that they get their sleep, they get their rest. But the unconditional love, we want to know that when we fail, you still love us. Okay? When we mess up, you still love us. But guess what? So does the wife. The wife wants to know that it's a place where it's unconditional love and acceptance. So we find that. Why? Because ultimately God gives us that love. Why is it that we fall in love with God more and more when we get deep, deeper in our relationship with him? It's because we know that in our faults and our imperfections and our failures and all of that, God still loves us. How much more when a marriage is that safe? When in that context, it's safe to know I can let my hair down and be accepted and loved. But now... We have the next one, sexual intimacy. You know how, what men, how they spell intimacy? S-E-X. I mean, that's it. That's what it is. It's a known fact. Let's not, let's not sit there and go, ooh, he just said that word. Because it's true that sexual intimacy is a need. But you know what, too? Women, don't, they don't spell it that way, guys. They spell emotional intimacy and communication is a need for them. Okay, and that's why I want to try to help us men here today. Emotional intimacy and communication. Now, that's a, how do they spell intimacy? T-A-L-K, talk. And guess what? We men say, no, we don't have time. We got the next task to do. And I think that's what's the problem. That's the breakdown. 
That's the breakdown between a man and a woman. That's the struggle right there. I want to even just show you a video. A video that shows how men struggle with opening up and just being vulnerable. Just watch this video. I think it's kind of, it's kind of fun. I am a man and I am romantically challenged. My wife is from Venus and I am from Mars. But we must learn to live together on Earth. Although I don't like to talk or share my feelings, I am here tonight to do both because I love my wife. Hi, my name is Dan, and I am romantically challenged. Hi, Dan. Dan, I want you to share your feelings, even though it goes against everything you stand for as a man. I tried the trick that Jerry taught us last week. Ah, 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 ah. A trick is what a two-bit magician does at a county fair. Jerry was given a technique, and a technique... Hey, Dr. Phil, let him finish. So anyway, I decided I'd use Jerry's technique last week. My wife came to me all exasperated and pulled her hair out and whatnot about her job. And I used Jerry's words exactly. I said, now honey, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to listen or fix it? And what'd she say? Listen. Fix it. And so anyway, I tried to listen. I really did. But in the middle of listening, I came up with a seven-point plan to fix it. I'm so ashamed. It's okay, Dan. Hey, you're multitasking, all right? And that is very hard for your untrained, one-track man brain to do. Feel proud of that, all right? Who's next? Hey, I'll go. Uh, hey, guys, I'm Jerry, and uh, I'm a, or was, romantically challenged. Hey, Jerry. Hey, Jerry. hey. yeah, I uh, actually went through the uh, program, and now I'm a, a real romantic, according to someone at home. <laughs> all right, okay, Jerry. Remember when we talked about how we're supposed to love our wives like Christ loves the church? Well, gentlemen, mission accomplished. <laughs> okay? This weekend, I saw some extra charges on Cindy's bank card. So, yeah. But I, uh, you know, instead of yelling and screaming like I normally would, uh, I acted in a more Christ-like manner. Yeah. yeah. So I simply turned over her nightstand and her scrapbooking table and said, get out of here, money changer. <laughs> I was like, get out of here. <laughs> I don't think that's what the Ephesians 5 passage means. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, Bill Gates. Uh, who are you? No, I, I think when it says that we should love our wives like Christ loved the church, that means that we're supposed to serve and, and sacrifice. Hey, I was cleansing the temple. I was cleansing the temple. All right, well, I guess that was kind of strange because, uh, see, it's a funny way of saying men struggle with sharing their heart or understanding. They struggle with understanding what does it mean to love their wives, meet their needs, communicate that, and find out. We can't meet the needs of our spouses if we don't understand who they are. And so it's important for us to realize that while I have to admit to you that conference that we're about to have changed my life. It helped me to understand more about my wife. And it helped me to understand that my language was not her language. My needs were not her needs. As we go down this chart, we have to grasp on that a man would want companionship. Man wants friendship. They're, they're longing for that. 
Often when uh, men lose their wives, even in an older age, they look for companionship still. But for the wife, it's spiritual intimacy. They want to be able to see that their men lead them well spiritually. They want them to be able to lead them not only in word, but in deed. They want to be able to see that they are going to live Christ out to them and to others. That's important. That's security for a a woman. Now, if a man's not looking at that, they need to be able to to make that the top of their list to be more Christ-like so they can be a light to the wife. Encouragement and affirmation is the fourth one. Encouragement, but also two. So we have number one and four the same. Encouragement and affirmation on both. We need to be affirmed. We need to be built up. Are you encouraging your wife? Are you encouraging your husband? Are you always beating them down and identifying what they don't do well? Are you lifting them up and identifying what they do well and reminding them? Are you replaying the video when they messed up some years ago? Or are you taking an opportunity and building them up? I mean, what is, I mean, it's encouragement. See, if God's changed us and has changed our lives, we need to encourage our spouses and those around us. And then it's spiritual intimacy for the man, which it really should be the top. But it's unfortunately towards the bottom. And then for the woman, it's companionship. Because, see, if you notice that widowers would look for someone, a widow doesn't often. Because she can find companionship is not something of a need for her. She would rather be secure in knowing that she's loved by God and has communication with others. So it's important to understand, and why I'm going further into detail with this is because too often we just check off. We serve our wives, and we'll do whatever we can. When there's a need, a man will serve a wife, and when there's a need, a wife will serve a man. When there's a deep need. But what, if it would look, what would it look like for the church to be intimately intentional? I mean, if they were just saying, I want to be intentional about reaching my spouse. What would that look like? How can we do that? Ways to improve communication with our spouse. One is we need to learn to express ourselves. I know we just did that little skit and we understood that expressing ourselves is really challenging because as a young person, we didn't know. There's a story in the book. It says um, a woman who, when she was the youngest child in her family of five verbally aggressive siblings, She got the feeling that no one really cared what she thought. By adulthood, she had developed the habit of waiting to be asked before expressing her opinion. It drove her husband crazy in the marriage. She would not express her thoughts or her feelings voluntarily. He longed to explore his wife's heart, but it was locked away with no key. And just like we talked about last week, it's sometimes expressing is so challenging because when we have to express, some it's natural for some, but some it's learned. And the key, the key points is that we have to express ourselves by sharing what we think, sharing what we feel, and sharing what we need. See, if we don't share our needs to one another, we won't be able to meet each other's needs. If we don't understand the needs of our wives or our husbands, then how can our marriages really be strong? It's not enough to just be married. We've got to be intentional about it. We've got to be a light, an example of Christ to the world. So by expressing ourselves, we may have to go deeper, but by expressing ourselves, we will grow stronger. And we have to listen. We have to learn to listen. 
I mean, it's quite clear we know that that's important because even the scripture, it says this, knowing this, my beloved brethren, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We know that men tend to struggle with anger and women just want to, for their husbands to listen. But it's very challenging. And also, when words are so many, transgression is not lacking. But what, whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So it's important for us to listen. Another way, too, is to respond. How do we respond? How do we respond in a way? Sometimes people, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame. So people, if they don't listen well, then they're not going to respond well. But if they listen well, then the response would become more prudent, wise. Sometimes we understand that men respond differently from women. Men respond by saying, I'll fix the situation. Or sometimes they get defensive or they get angry or withdraw. Even while the wife is still talking or complaining about a problem, the husband is forming a solution in his mind, ready to fix the problem, making it right and correct the error. I catch myself doing that. I catch myself trying to come up with a solution, so I, and I'm not listening well. How many of you, we struggle with that as men, we're just ready to quickly fix the solution so we go on to the next task? Women desire security. This is how they respond, and reassurance and a sympathetic ear and validation and response from their husbands. They need empathy and understanding. The wife needs an emotional connection before listening to the suggestions. Unfortunately, men want to fix the problem so they can go back to the nothing box. That nothing box is simply shutting off the brain and watching TV. And that's what it is. That's what we want. We want to go to the next task. We just want to shut everything off. We want to quick and hurry. And one of the things that's been challenging for me is I've had to learn that to love my wife as Christ loves the church, something's got to change in me. I've got to learn to listen. I've got to wait and res- before I respond. And I don't have any problem. I'm naturally expressive. But it's all of us, each one of our makeups, if we can learn that and grow in our relationship with our marriage, that would be effective. See, in the last part of this skit, one more man speaks up and shares. And I just want to share that la- last part of the skit with you. Who wants to go next? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, bathroom break isn't it yet. Uh, sorry, I gotta go. Sorry, guys. Oh, Mr. Big Guy doesn't want to share, does he? Not tonight. Probably doesn't care about his wife. Okay, um, I'll share. Um, okay. Um, this is a picture of my wife and kids. Um, I've been married for 20 years. We married young, and I don't regret it. I remember um, when we got engaged, her father looked at me and he said, just love her the way Christ loved the church. I smiled and said I would, having no idea what that meant. And I still don't know if I understand it. But you know what I want? I want to be a man who wakes up every morning and asks the question, how can I bless my wife? Men, isn't that what you want? I mean, isn't your wife worth it?
Hey, wait. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Sit down, Jerry. Oh, Captain, my Captain. Okay, enough. Sit down. What? What is? What is going on? Sit down. Please sit down. I need a wife. Yeah, that was awesome. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I know that's just a little fun little, little video there, but it's true. How are we going to be willing, intimately, intentionally, wanting to reach our spouses? Are we willing to say, I want to learn more about my wife or my husband? We've got to lead, men. We've got to serve with a love that God gave us. See, serving love is discovering a need and doing everything we can to meet it. What is that need for your spouse? Husband, what is that need for your wife? Wife, what is that need for your husband? Let's stop looking at the lens through us as in our gender and find out what that need is. God reached us and met a need. How can we reach others and meet that need as well? I want to encourage you today, I'm going to dismiss you in prayer, and as I do, I just want you guys to keep this as the last thinking in your mind. Go home today, this week, ask God, where is that need that you need to meet your wife or your husband, and start working on it. I know I needed to do that, and I'm continuing to work on that. So I want to encourage you to do so. We want to see marriages not just being marriages coming together. We want to see marriages that are intentional so that we can reflect the love of Jesus Christ in everything we do and say. Christ came to die for us. We need to sacrifice ourselves for our marriages. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us today. I pray that as you dismiss us today, we're serious about marriages. We're spending an entire five weeks of, our, of a sermon series. We're having a conference coming up this Friday. We're serious about marriages because you're serious about marriages. God, we're thankful for Jim and Wanda and their example of sticking it out to the end. They're committed to one another in their older age. Lord, thank you. What an example. God, I pray that today we would walk out of here excited, moved, challenged, wanting to serve our spouses intentionally. God, I pray that each one of us in this room will find something we can do to serve our, our spouses and stop complaining and stop finding out what's wrong with them and start serving them. Lord, we love you. We thank you for everybody in this room. We thank you for Grace Church. We thank you for your love. May we be intentional so we could be a light to a world. Dismiss us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a great week. Remember to